Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Dr. Ron Baghetto is an internationally recognised expert on creative thought and action in educational settings. He explains why all students need to be creative thinkers and asks if creativity is a generic skill and if or how we should assess it in schools. Some of his research focuses include the role of uncertainty in creative risk-taking, how making principled changes to existing teaching and learning practices can result in more creative, productive and sustainable educational contributions, and how to support teachers and young people when making positive and lasting contributions to learning and the lives of others. Dr. Baghetto earned his PhD in Educational Psychology from Indiana University with an emphasis in teaching, learning, cognition and instruction. It was great to finally speak with him. I hope that you enjoy this fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. Ron, such a, such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thrilled to be here with you, Matthew. I know it's super early for you, so I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, not a problem. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you calling from? Uh, the, the States um, and so the Southwest, Arizona, um, where the sun always shines and it's going to be very, very hot here this week <laughs> in the what's, desert. Uh, what, what's hot for you guys? Uh, we get to 110, 115 Fahrenheit, which is gets pretty insane. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to do the maths from Fahrenheit to uh, centigrade, but that sounds hot. Yeah, blistering hot. So, you know. The, the mornings are cool, but it's nice. It's, you know, the, the beautiful thing is it's sunny year round for the most part. So you can always be outside, which is great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, speaking of which, what is uh, currently outside your nearest window? What's your view? Uh, so I, we live kind of in the high desert. So I can see some, you know, cacti and desert oh, wow. plants and some desert hills that we my daughter and I take morning hikes every morning at 5 a.m we get up and take a good hour-long hike to start the day which is a beautiful thing to be able to do so we're so yeah it's that that's what it looks like out my window how about yours <laughs> look it's uh it's it's pretty dark uh, we're in the, <laughs> um we're in the middle of winter at the moment I, I'm aware that an Australian winter is um uh, probably not as cold as other parts in the world. Um, I was originally born in the UK, so an Australian winter is uh, almost uh, almost refreshing. Um, so uh, it's getting quite cold though. Like it's probably sitting at about uh, yesterday was about nine or ten uh, degrees centigrade, um, which is it's chilly for us Sydney siders. So we have to put a we always have to put on a light jumper when it gets to those temperatures. So uh, sure, yeah, but it's but it's not too bad. <laughs> Um, quite possibly uh, the most uh, important question uh, of the interview. What's your coffee order, just in case we ever get a chance to uh, to catch up? What's my coffee order? Yeah. Yeah, I like a, a good, strong Americano. So, yeah, during the pandemic, I I went deep down in the rabbit hole of, um, you know, making my own espressos, just kind of becoming a, a home barista. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so getting good beans, I get some excellent beans from San Francisco actually, but there's good roasters everywhere. And just learning how to, to kind of get the grind right and, and find the right ratios of, of water to espresso. But you know, a good double uh, Americano is my, my drink of choice. How about yours? 
Uh, look, um, I'm a, a, a flat white guy. I don't think you guys have that in the States. I think it's pretty pretty similar, but to be honest, anything to do with caffeine. I mean, there's a, a bustling coffee culture um, over in Australia, a bit of yes. rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, but um, yeah, I love anything strong, uh, straight to the point, efficient. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my caffeine addiction was fueled when I was at university. And so it's uh, one of those things that has lived uh, lived with me ever since. So uh, yeah, it's yes. a very, impo very important part of my day. Um, Indeed. What is uh, one of your favorite books? I mean, it can be uh, related to your field in education um, or, or, or not so. What's a book that's really transformed uh, you or the way that you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's so many influences. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. You know, on, honestly, I think some of the things that really were kind of informative to me, because I used to be an English literature major, and I, I at one point in my life, fashioned myself as an aspiring poet. <laughs> so I'd say the poets have always been, you know, the poetry, particularly uh, some of the romantics. I, um, Yeats has, is a fascinating poet, Keats. Um, but I enjoy, you know, Emily Dickinson. Wow. I enjoy a lot of the the poetry of that kind of um, earlier era. I realize Dickinson's a little bit later than that. Yeah. But I'm always fascinated by poetry because I think there's um, it's it operates in such interesting constraints. First of all, it's it's usually much briefer way of trying to communicate, but it's also drawing on so many images and um, wordplay that I find that to be really, and, and you, it's something you can return to multiple times mm -hmm. and really mm -hmm. sit with. So I would say, you know, poetry, um, but some of the early influences, particularly when I was an undergrad at the university was, you know, Yeats and Keats. Um, yeah. There were just amazing um, yeah. vistas of new possibility when I was yeah. reading their I, poetry. My wife and I both, uh, we met in high school, but started dating at university and we both, um, Went to Sydney University and we were studying English. And um, I remember the the most expensive purchase I made at the time was an anthology of poetry. Um, it was one of our recommended readings, and it's the only one that I haven't just looking at it now. It's sitting on our bookshelf, the Norton Anthology of English Literature, and it was the uh, one of the only books that we didn't resell as soon as we graduated. So it's really um, it's a really incredible book and I think as you mentioned going back to it again and again and uh, drawing out new wisdom from these um, incredible verses is uh, it's really quite amazing and Yeats and um, and all of these wonderful uh, wonderful poets um, it's yeah. really lovely to go back and rediscover that yeah yeah and I think you know finding so I, I have those anthologies as well but I think what was interesting also is is learning about all these voices from around the world and voices that don't often get anthologized. So yeah, yeah. it's always interesting just to stumble across any poets. Um, I, I just really applaud and appreciate folks that, you know, express themselves in that way um, yeah. through language. So yeah, I think poetry in in, in any form is, is always kind of an inspiring and yeah. I'm always um, interested in, in seeing where those those lines can take you <laughs> yeah, absolutely look i could um i could talk all day um about poetry i show you could as well like it's a really beautiful medium and and um one of the things i'm really passionate about as a primary school teacher is really uh, introducing children to the uh, the richness and then and the beauty of um of language um and so it's really lovely like i work with um 
children that are seven and eight. It's really lovely to get to see them um, uh, start to view themselves as potential poets or writers. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege that I am uh, constantly, um, constantly amazed of to get to see them do that. It's really beautiful. But um, I understand you're a bit of a fan of Miles Davis, um, or at least yeah. there's, a, there's a quote that I uh, just wanted to read, and I just wanted to get your thoughts uh, on that. Um, it says, says that there's nothing wrong, sorry, that there is no wrong, there are no wrong notes in jazz, just notes in the wrong places. And I just wanted you to maybe uh, unpack that quote for a few moments and talk about um, the import, why is it important for us to understand creativity? Yeah. So what that quote means to you, it's a beautiful quote. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think the, the jazz musicians are so also inspiring. I mean, it's kind of sonic poetry, if you will, um, yeah. the way um, folks play jazz, Miles Davis and, and so many others. And, and the thing about it, too, is, yeah, Miles Davis has a lot of poetic sayings and very inspiring sayings like that, where it really is about, um, and I think this, this applies with learning and teaching and creativity, that particularly for young people, when you're working with young people, when they're when they're genuinely trying to express themselves or understand something, or even you know, share their creativity, you know, sometimes, you know, that you might have a young person that is inspired to write a poem during a maths exam or something, right? Yeah. And that's that's a that's a great thing, but the context of the maths exam is probably not the 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 most um, appropriate venue for that simply because it may not get heard, it might yeah. get dismissed. And so it's not that it's wrong for a student to do that. Um, it's just that it's, it's not the you know, right place for that at that particular time. In most cases, I mean, perhaps they have a teacher like you, Matthew, that would say, oh, this is beautiful, let's go with it, you know, yes. But in many cases, I think part of what we're trying to support young people to do is is A, realize that all humans, including them, can express themselves creatively and, and can contribute to others um, through their own creative expression. And also knowing when to kind of read the environment. So it's kind of a creative metacognition that my colleague James Kaufman and I um, talk about and, and some of my other colleagues. So oftentimes if you're trying to express yourself in a new or different way, um, being able to read the context to help ensure that it's actually going to be heard and recognized is an important component. And so I think jazz musicians um, do that very well, as well as, you know, improv players, um, improv comedy or improvisational acting, for example, it really is about listening as much as, as performing. Mm. So really trying to understand what, where that's coming from and trying to find trying to work with that. So I think as a teacher, we're often in the in that space where we have a predetermined plan and we see something emerge that looks like perhaps a wrong note, but rather than simply judge it as a wrong note, see if you could yes and it, if you will. That's the old improv, yeah. you know, cliche. Yeah. But the idea of can we work with this somehow? Can we can we not stifle this? Can we redirect it? Which might mean to put the pause button on it. Mm. But I think that's what that quote captures for me is is A helping us teach that kind of ethos to young people, but to walk the talk as educators to not immediately evaluate something as right or wrong. And there are things that fit and don't fit in particular contexts, but to try to work with it, to kind of yes and that, to try to, to understand where's this coming from? How can we support this? Where is the time and place for this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of- um, That's great. 
the long-winded <laughs> response to why I find that quote. And there's so many other ways you can mm -hmm. interpret that quote, but I think it's a good reminder for us, particularly as parents or educators, um, to not immediately determine something's wrong and just be willing to listen and try mm -hmm. to work with yeah. whether rather than kind of um, not yeah. hear it or work against it. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for unpacking that. Uh, it's really interesting. And another favorite quote of mine is um, by the wonderful uh, Pablo Picasso. And he talks about every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. And I, having the privilege of working in a primary school, um, I I see that um, that every day, like that incredible sense of uh, seeing students uh, learn and play and discover, but also see some of the restraints uh, that are put on students as they grow up. And I think for me, that reminds me of, we are all, we're just uh, big kids and we're just old, old people or older children. And so for me to remember to play and to take our time to, to, to uh, even return to that natural state of being creative. Um, I had the privilege of spending a lot of time in uh, kindergartens, uh, kindergarten classrooms, and there is no lack of creativity in those classrooms. Let me tell you, it's quite a, quite an amazing place. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think part of it is, you know, the nice thing about play, um, so a key focus of my work is uncertainty. And I talked about how uncertainty is kind of the fuel for creativity, because yeah. when we really are experiencing uncertainty, and, and if we're willing to, to kind of step into that and sit yeah. with that uncertainty, we realize that it's kind of an invitation for us to yeah. think and act in new yeah. ways. And so that's what kind of play is. Play allows you to disrupt what is known um, and, and change that and, and to kind of take the known and make it um, unfamiliar. So take yeah. the familiar, make it unfamiliar, make the familiar unfamiliar. You yeah. know? forward and backward. And so I think play is a natural way of doing that. And that's where like organizations like the Lego Foundation of, of which I've collaborated with, you know, they're, they're really about this message of the importance of lifelong play. Yeah. That that's, it's a serious piece of being human, right? And yeah. I think playing around with ideas and sometimes we're afforded the opportunity to do that in, in our adult lives, but many times we're not, you know, we, um, Feel like we have to meet certain expectations in a certain way and we have a certain amount of time to do it and so yeah. uh i think we sometimes to our own peril uh forget about play forget about curiosity forget about wonder um, these are all concepts that one of my colleagues vlad glavenu also talks about yeah. and how important these are just to the human condition right and i think young people can kind of remind us of that yeah and so, but as we move out in the world, in order for people to kind of recognize some of this work as creative, I think part of it is you start working in these disciplines and domains and, and there are experts and gatekeepers and so on. And so you kind of have to learn the constraints a little bit in order to kind of work within those and demonstrate um, sometimes in playful ways, how we can still meet the criteria, but we can do it in a different way. It doesn't always have to be, you know, meeting expected criteria in expected yeah. ways, which is what a lot of school, unfortunately, yeah. is predominantly about. Yeah. So Ron, can I just ask just as an aside, what does, yeah. uh, what does play look like for you uh, now as a, uh, I don't really like the term grown up, but as someone who has maybe left childhood, uh, what, what does that look like for you? How do you um, embrace or embody that in your life? Well, I mean, I think there's so many different ways of thinking through this. You know, I think you can think about the playground of the mind, 
right? Mm -hmm. Or the kind of ideational garden. And so I think you can play with ideas. You can play with designs, right? I think um, much like young people pick up any object and turn it into something different. I think we can kind of do that in our own work. You know, mm -hmm. the constraints that we're working under that maybe feels stifled with, can we play a little bit with those? Yeah. So if you're an educator, you know, maybe you've designed a lesson and it's something you're required to teach and, and so on. And, and it's working okay, but you notice that, you know, maybe the students aren't responding, not all the students are responding well to it, or maybe you are a little dissatisfied with it. You know, one way to go would just be to kind of accept that and move on. The other approach would be to kind of tinker with that or play with that, play mm -hmm. with the design. What if we remove something that I used to demonstrate and invite the students to demonstrate? So I think you can play with design structures and ideas in that way. And that can be profoundly generative. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also good just to um, engage and play for its own sake, right? So playing games, you know, I think tabletop board games have become increasingly popular, particularly during the yeah. pandemic when you're, yeah. you're, you know, and so I think being able just to um, do something for, for the fun of doing it. I mean, I think mm. it's an end, it's, it's a legitimate end, joyful experiences. There, there doesn't have to be anything that follows that, yeah. right? So I think play affords you know, an opportunity to um, just experience enjoyment. But I think the reason why is, is because it is a way to open up a vista of possibilities. So anything, any kind of tinkering, and sometimes play can be serious and sometimes play can be challenging and difficult and frustrating, right? When you're playing around with something and it's not working. And you can see this probably with the young students you work with. Yeah. Sometimes they get really emotionally upset or frustrated and that's okay too, right? I think play can encompass this wide expanse of human experience, including human emotion. And it's okay to sometimes be frustrated, but I think you can also, you know, play with that a little bit. Like, mm. why am I, why am I experiencing that? So when I think of play, I think of tinkering. I think of it as just, again, it's an an opportunity to take something that is represented in one way and imagine it in a different way. And so when mm -hmm. you start doing that, it, it opens up this kind of horizon of new possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's wonderful. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, so take me back to, uh, to the beginning a few years ago when you were uh, in, as you call it, elementary school. Um, what? That was more than a few years ago. I know, okay. I know. Tell me about <laughs> it. I, I feel, yeah, it races, time races on very quickly. Um, but where did it all start for you? Like, why did you decide to uh, dedicate your life to studying creativity? And also, what were you like as a student at school? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I never consciously thought about creativity ever until uh, I was actually a school teacher. Yeah. When I had a group of students who asked me to coach them in a creative problem solving after school kind of activity, which I had no idea what they were talking about. And that's how I kind of, but I saw something magical happen with that. That's what kind of sent me in a formal pursuit of trying to understand, okay, have researchers, are there, are there people that have actually studied creativity and, and what is that? And why isn't it happening in school? If this, if what I saw was something called creative problem solving, then why aren't we doing this every day instead of after school? Um, but for me, I think, you know, we as humans are experiencing creativity all the time. Something that I saw that was really, I think even before school for me 
was my dad was uh, a jeweler and he also had some patents and he would tinker around and play with ideas and, and make little prototypes. Um, but unfortunately he didn't really have an audience, right? The audience he would share it out with would be like my mom's side of the family. And they would sometimes just kind of mock his ideas. And I, I remember how painful it was to see that, right. right? And how stifling that was. And that there really wasn't an audience. There was no internet then. Right. There wasn't even those television shows, those shopping network shows or anything where you could take a, a, a product to market like that. So yeah. you were really limited by the context and the context we were in. There just wasn't a way for him to really he tried to find those audiences. And I could just start seeing this really expansive set of ideas and even prototypes of ideas that were really interesting start kind of narrowing, narrowing, narrowing until it just became only our immediate family. And I remember just getting so upset and under, not understanding why aren't people willing to at least explore the possibility of why you might need this kind of grapefruit spoon that he kind of fashioned or he had a cup <laughs> he made a cup holder before cars had cup holders things like that um but you know they just never went anywhere um and in fact they were kind of rejected and sometimes in pretty Gosh. harsh ways so Gosh. that kind of um got me realizing that you know sometimes new ideas don't always get accepted and so in school when i was really young i really didn't express my ideas if they were different than what i thought the teacher might think about so i would just go into my imagination and stare out the window so i'd get notes in the report card like you know he's staring out the window all the time you know he seems capable but he's, he's not report card. Yeah. yeah he's not present <laughs> Um, but I did have a couple of teachers that really did encourage me to express myself in different ways, right? So they're in writing or whatever, um, you know, my father passed away when I was in, um, in secondary school as a high school student, I was like age 16. And that was super difficult for me. And my mm. grandfather passed away like a couple of weeks later. And so it was through poetry that I was able to kind of try to make sense of this meaningless, um, existence I found myself in immediately I was just kind of I went off the rails as, as a 16 year old but a place where I could kind of scratch out some meaning was poetry and then I shared that with a couple teachers in high school and then later in college and they really kind of supported me in that venue of expression so again I didn't know I wasn't saying oh I'm being creative mm. um, but those were real um, I think almost for my survival important aspects of creative yeah. expression because I, I I was kind of sensing this tension that in, if I don't express this outward in a ha healthy way it's going to either turn on myself or I'm just going to be destructive in everything I do and in the people mm -hmm. I meet or, or whatever I would just go off the rails right so I was just kind of in that space where it was kind of this you know almost a crossroads type of space because it just seemed yeah. life was so meaningless at that point so trying to find meaning through, I guess, the vehicle of poetry just was something I stumbled across uh, simply yeah. because I had really supportive teachers. And for whatever reason, I guess we, you know, the, the conference I was speaking at the other day was on creativity and serendipity. So it was kind of the serendipitous moment where I was, was getting an opportunity to engage in public speaking in my high school language arts class, but also read poetry. Yeah. And for whatever reason, at that time, I was able to notice that as a meaningful way 
for me to express myself in a way that I never have before through mm -hmm. poetry. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, yeah. that's a full circle back to, you know, why poetry was, I guess, something so powerful and personally powerful to me and just kind of helped me kind of not necessarily erase the pain, but maybe put a more productive framing around it. Because yeah. <laughs> I was really struggling um, with, you know, just being kind of a yeah. wild 16 year old and 17 year old and 18 year old and nine. And so it was until I kind of really was able to settle in and see that you can take whatever this pain and angst and existential wow. meaninglessness that you're experiencing and, and actually, you know, generate that in kind of a positive direction. Yeah. And I think we sometimes see that as educators with students who are having something really profoundly tragic happening to them or confusing. And sometimes they can, if they have the opportunity, they can express that mm. not only through the arts, but through any kind of creative outlet, which could be yeah. sport or whatever, right? Or even academics. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting to see, um, and, and again, it's about listening to students. So students that are misbehaving, you know, it's not because they're a bad kid, there might be something else going on that we want to try to understand. And, and yeah. if we can help provide an opportunity for them to channel that yep. through their learning or through the arts or through creative expression, I think that could be a really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, um, of course. That story, it's a really, um, it's a really beautiful story. And also I think there's so many people that would be able to relate to that. Um, I, you, um, in, a, in a TEDx talk in Manchester, you talked about a story about your daughter uh, getting in trouble for asking questions uh, in school. Uh -huh. um, I believe your daughter's name is Olivia, is that correct? Correct, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you're just uh, wondering if you uh, wouldn't mind unpacking that story. It seems uh, it's such a, a wonderful story and I would love you to do that justice if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, of course, yeah. And she's now um, a teenager. So she's still okay with me telling these stories, but she's a little bit more, you know, you know, you keep telling stories, but she's okay with it. because How old sees... was she at the time What's when she was at school? <sighs> Grade three, but that wasn't the start of it. It, it actually started in preschool. It kind of gets back to this idea of the, the Miles Davis quote, honestly, yeah. Yeah. starting in preschool. Um, you know, I always tell the story and she kind of cringes when I tell it, but it, it's, it's a beautiful story. So they had a no potty talk rule. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't talk about poop or pee or you know, farting or what all these different things that little preschoolers talk about a lot. Yeah. But she had a flatulence in school. And so she called it a poop bubble. She didn't call it a fart. She called it a poop bubble. I can see why and she then, doesn't want you to keep sharing this story. Yeah, yeah, of course. But so she told me about it, went on the drive home and I laughed and thought it was hilarious and fantastic and creative. Yeah. And she was really confused why her teacher didn't think it was. And so this became one of those moments where, you know, in this context, you, there are these rules, but, you know, in the car or at home, it's totally fine. Right. So this is um, it's not a wrong note. It's just not it's not for that context. But we can find a place where where and we can, you know, I'm still telling that story. So I think her experience with school was always trying to understand if you're being asked a question or if you're, if you're asked, or if you have a, a space where you can kind of express yourself, why is it that it's, you're getting stifled? Mm -hmm. So she had a lot of experiences like this um, in mathematics and different classes. Her experience in math was kind of interesting because a lot of her experience in math was just doing math worksheets. 
yeah. constantly um to the point where you know when i was talking to her about like well there are people that are mathematicians and you know mathematicians think math is beautiful and i was trying to give her this other alternative vision of math and she's like well who would ever want to like fill out worksheets all day or, or make those worksheets because that's I her idea you. of what a math i said right. well that's not what mathematicians are doing <laughs> those are those are math or those are test companies or yeah. curriculum textbook companies or something like that so um you know what she she had these different experiences in 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 her in i think almost all her years of schooling um and, and until recently now things things are she's kind of understanding the game of school a little bit better but she's also understanding what's expected of her now she's yeah. under kind of figuring it out but so before that story she you know the teach they were doing duration problems or something like that you know so-and-so starts reading at this time and finishes this time, how much time do they spend reading? And, you know, so the teacher asked, you know, does anybody have any questions about time before we do these worksheets? And she says, well, where'd the time from yesterday go? Great question. Right? And so again, it was just, you know, the teacher didn't respond that great to it. And again, I told her that was a great question, but this isn't a philosophy seminar, it's third grade math or whatever. Um, but one thing that ended up happening then is um, I think one of the reasons why the teacher kind of responded that way is she had passed a note to another student that said, I hate this worksheet factory or something like that. <laughs> it makes me so sad that that is, that that's the story of most, that's most children's perspective of maths. Yeah. Yeah. So I know it's, it's because it can be so generative, you know, it can really be a generative space, even though there's a correct answer. I think one of the great things about maths is there are often multiple ways of getting to that, mm. right? So students can really experience the joy and, and creativity of finding a different way other than it was taught and maybe something that the teacher doesn't even, never even thought about. Um, and young kids can do that. So I think the thing about that was, um, it was just such a confusing space that she continually resisted. Mm. She would really push back against because she just, she would be asked a question and she would answer it genuinely. And, you know, the teacher thought she was just wasting time or being in willfully disruptive because she didn't want to get to the worksheets. And, and maybe there's a component of that and, and maybe rightly so, but there was also a genuineness of exploration, yeah. of curiosity, right? Of, yeah. you know, if you're asking me a question, um, it was just a weird concept that teachers would be asking known answer questions. And it's what I call the game of intellectual hide and seek, right? Mm. She didn't think the teacher was playing this game of intellectual hide and seek, like, I'm going to ask you a question, guess what I want to hear and how I want to hear it, which is, by the way, the, the formula for school, yeah. right? To be successful in school is do what's expected and how it's expected. And often that comes out in some times, and I've done that as an educator as well, in these kind of questions that are known answer questions. And the goal is not only to provide what's expected, but how it's expected. And I think that whole I think those stories, why I share them, and I think why it's, it's so important, not just because, you know, it's again, you know, somebody who I care about, you know, one of the most important people in my life, but also because I think it, it does, a lot of young people experience that. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of pulls the curtain back on this pedagogy of sameness that's at play in schools, mm. right? That it really is about kids doing the same thing in the same way at the same time, trying to arrive at the same answer in the same way, in a way that's the teacher has the same conception of and so engineering out difference and thereby engineering out creativity so when you privilege sameness like that 
kids that can provide answers that match the teacher's expectations um, likely are going to be more similar to their teachers, right? So kids who have different social, cultural, historical backgrounds, even though they might be providing a correct answer or a really profound response, that can get dismissed because it's not recognizable. Yeah. Because the teacher isn't kind of yes anding that, trying yeah. to understand that, right? As like, whoa, that's unexpected. And sometimes, you know, it's it is a mistake, right? Or the kids misunderstanding it, or sometimes you know, the kid is trying to willfully be disruptive. I mean, I've been that student before. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's also genuinely creative. And I think the challenging thing for educators and parents and coaches is that it's, you can't really tell when, it, when that first manifests. It's something surprising happens. And so rather than assume that the kid doesn't understand or the kid is trying to be disruptive, to try to explore that first rather than evaluate it, rather mm. than say, that's the, uh, you're playing a wrong note. Yeah, yeah, look, maybe, yeah. Yeah, look, thank you. I mean, absolutely. I I, I think I've definitely been um, guilty of that in classrooms as well, because I think sometimes um, embracing uncertainty is uh, really challenging and also really, um, um, uh, really destabilizing. And I just wondered if you could maybe spend a few moments sort of talking about that. I mean, what are some of the reasons why people find it so challenging to embrace uncertainty and what can we do to try and um, sort of combat that in some ways? Yeah, so I think, you know, uncertainty is an uncomfortable experience. And again, yeah. everyone in the world's been living with that in very profound ways in the past year yeah. and a half, but it's something, you know, it's an aspect of life. Um, and so I think in the context of classrooms, educators are typically prepared to be very intentional and very well prepared in their lessons, plan everything sometimes down to the second, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so um, as, a, as some sort of measure to make things very certain, so the teacher knows exactly where the lesson is going and they're anticipating all these different responses. And, but when everything's predetermined like that and something unexpected emerges, which it always does, right? No matter how well planned your lesson is, yes. you know, this curriculum theorist Ted Aoki from Canada would often say, you know, there, when the curriculumist plan meets the curriculumist live, there will always be these ruptures, right? And those ruptures can be very generative. Those, those ruptures are moments of uncertainty where, whoa, you know, I didn't expect to hear this, or I didn't expect this to go that way. But if you can step into that, I would argue that uncertainty is, again, the catalyst um, for creative thought, because it can, it can really be an opportunity to think and act in new ways and to actually generate new learning, not just for the students, but for the teachers. But I think why teachers sometimes feel uncomfortable with that, and I've kind of interrogated this in my own self as an educator, but I think it's, it's very common is if you think about it, and the same is true for administrators and so on, if you don't know where the lesson is going or if you're getting off the lesson plan, um, then you, it starts kind of questioning your competence or your identity. You know, what kind of teacher am I if I don't know where this is gonna mm -hmm. go next, yeah. right? And I think yeah. teachers fear like automatically go to like, this is gonna drift in some sort of curricular chaos and maybe they've experienced curricular chaos, right? Or they experience following a kid's idea and you go down this curricular rabbit hole and it's just chaotic. So I think there are, either experiences or fears that are kind of legitimate around that. But again, I think part of it is just trusting yourself and your students, or if you're a parent and your child or a coach, you know, your players or whatever, to explore where this might be and, and to have those conversations say, you know, 
we'll explore these things. Sometimes we're going to need to put them on the shelf and return to them later. And then I think you have to do that. And yeah. sometimes you don't have time to do it right now, but to, to show that you really are interested and realize that this is not necessarily a wrong note. And it can actually make, um, if you're playing jazz, it could, it could be the note that really changes everything into mm -hmm. a really beautiful generative space. And so I think as educators start realizing that what we're really trying to do in education is prepare young people for the future, the future is yeah. inherently uncertain and so is the present in many ways, then can we give them and ourselves opportunities to learn how to navigate uncertainty? Yeah. So what I invite educators to think about is, yes, it's so important that you still provide a structured and supportive learning environment no matter what, but we tend to overstructure those environments. Can we remove some of the pieces that are overplanned, overstructured, and allow those to be to be determined by the students. And when we do that, students develop their confidence. Yeah. They develop their, their competence as well. They recognize that they can navigate this uncertainty and ultimately be creative in doing so and contribute to the learning of others. And I think oftentimes young people never get those experiences. When I was um, directing Innovation House at the University of Connecticut, the students there, the entire curriculum was just this little wireframe curriculum I designed where the students identify problems that matter to them and maybe nobody else realizes the problem. And then they have to build a case for why it matters, partner with outside experts um, to do something about it, to address it and try to make a positive and lasting contribution. And yeah. many of those students had never in their entire education career and they're all really excellent students or at university, um, and they were across all majors, so many of them had never had the opportunity to do that and they didn't know how to, how to approach that. They, they would ask, what problems should we solve? What kind of project should, and I would say, this is your chance to be an innovator, not a spectator <laughs> of the learning. But that's, that's kind of their experience. They've been spectators of other people's problems that have already been solved and they just get to kind of replicate that. Yeah. Can you learn that way? Of course, but you also need opportunities to realize that you can identify problems that matter. You can actually solve problems that are really complex that don't have a solution yet. And you can make the world a better place. And I think the youngest kids can learn to do that, but it requires uncertainty on the part of the teacher. You, mm -hmm. As a teacher, you don't know what problems are gonna identify, how they're gonna approach those and what the outcome's gonna be. But what you do, no, is you can still set up criteria. You can still set up non-negotiables. Like what are the guidelines? What are the timelines? How can I provide the supports? And no matter what happens at the end of those projects, there's always an opportunity to talk about the learning. So some of the richest discussions, so we would have this exhibition learning at the, at the end of the year. And even the projects that were kind of a disaster, it was still profound learning. We'd have an exhibition of learning, not the project. So if you did something, some students started companies and all these different things. And other students changed their topic multiple times and had a brand new idea at the very end. Some, it was just kind of a disaster. They just didn't spend enough time on it and their team disbanded and <laughs> there was all kinds of things that happened. But every student had an opportunity to still talk about, tell the story of the project. Mm. What happened? What were you trying to do? Um, what did you learn about the problem? What did you learn about yourself? What would you do differently? And some of those conversations, even the most kind of catastrophic failures, can be the most generative learning for everybody involved. Yeah. In fact, I would invite the first year students that were first year students when they were second year students to come back in and tell those stories. Wow. And we, then 
my team and I would also share our stories of our favorite failures. And in fact, that's a project I have with a colleague, Laura McBain at, at the Stanford D School, where we're collecting narratives of failures because we feel like telling the stories of that could be so powerful. But again, it's all about uncertainty. Yeah. But I think what you can be confident in is you as a professional educator can navigate it. You can provide structure when necessary. But I think we need to trust that we can provide moments of uncertainty and our students can rise to the challenge and we can provide the supports to help them do so. And we can add more structure or we could take structure away and ultimately learning is gonna happen. So yeah. we, can, we can structure that component. But I think that's, there's so many reasons why. I just think it's so different than right. what most of us experience as students ourselves. It kind of challenges our identity of what it means to be an educator. Like if you have to set down the lesson plan or yeah. kind of, and do something else, then you know, there must be some, is that a sign of incompetence? And I would say, no, that's a sign of competence. The most competent educators know when to set the lesson plan down. Like if the lesson is on fire, you should probably step out of the lesson <laughs> rather than just invite everyone to come crashing yeah. down in, yeah. into ashes, right? <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I, I've got uh, just a little bit of dad advice. Um, I've got, two, <laughs> I've got a, a two-year-old and a, an almost four-year-old. What advice would you give um, parents or if you like me um, on um, uh, continuing to sort of uphold those, those skills with our young people? Um, I know that I only have to look at my two-year-old and see how she destroys something and then rebuilds it into another wonderful creation to know that, that these skills um, are innately human. Um, yeah. But uh, what, uh, what advice would you give to a dad trying to figure out how to raise him <laughs> in the right way? Yeah, yeah I mean, they, these are survival. The ultimately, creativity is a human survival skill that everyone already has. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's really challenging as a parent even more so than I think as an educator. Yeah. Just because there's, you have so much invested in it, so much of yourself, right, mm -hmm. is invested in it. So, so I think it's really difficult to not be, because um, I think we, we really, I mean, as educators, obviously we want the best for our, our students, but as parents, right, we really are vested in making sure things go well for young people to the point where we just get in our own way and their own way. And it's so hard to step back and you know provide supports and allow young people to make mistakes. And it can be super frustrating and irritating. I mean, when they're toddlers, it's, it's kind of cute. When they become teenagers, it's really, really challenging. And it's easy to lose your cool and just be like, what in the world are you doing? You know what I mean? So yeah. I think it's, we have to remind ourselves that they are the, their own people that the best thing we can do is make sure, again, it's just like the same thing, provide a supportive and structured environment for them, but not overstructure it. And it, striking that balance is so critical. You know, provide for your own child, you wanna provide this loving, supportive, structured environment. And then, you know, they do things that seem like, you know, they don't appreciate it or they're destroying it or whatever. You know, it's, it's really hard to let go of those kind of our own hopes for their future and allow them to actually construct their own future yeah. with us providing support as needed and knowing and part of that is knowing when to step out and that is really i mean believe me i could <laughs> use advice myself it's it's so much harder to walk the talk in your own life as yeah. we know 
Um, but I think those little reminders, you know, remembering some of those things, I would say for you is maybe documenting some of those things for yourself, maybe keeping a little parenting journal and then having conversations with your kid. You know, something that my daughter and I try to do is we, we go on these hikes, um, just spending time letting your child talk about whatever they want. Yeah. And really trying to listen rather than correct or, yeah. you know, impart this wisdom or something that will, you know, sometimes just fall to the ground. And, but that's okay, right? It's letting them have their time and their voice and, and let them, you know, figure out who they are in the world. Right. I think that's a, it's just really challenging thing. It doesn't get easier with yeah. age by any means. But I think we can remind ourselves of these moments where it's, and, and then I think also letting them know um, that we're there to support them and that we care for them and, you know, yeah. that it's okay to, you know, make mistakes and those kinds yeah. of things. Um, and that, you know, we appreciate what they're doing and, and just kind of celebrate that and, and yeah. kind of name that, but it's, it can be challenging. So I'm, I'm not, um, <laughs> I try not to give advice because <laughs> I just appreciate, I know people are trying to do the best they can, yeah. but I think sometimes those little reminders, um, and I have to do that for myself, just, every day to try to start fresh and say, okay, because yeah. there, there's a little video of me when my daughter was like 18 months old and she was just going through a picture book, just giving an example. And she was, you know, pointing out the moon. And then there's another page with the sun on it. And she's like, look at the moon. I'm like, actually, that's the sun. <laughs> so immediately I'm correcting. She shuts the book and the reading time's over for her. Wow. Right. And so that's just those little reminders for me is like, okay, why? I mean, I want my daughter to know the difference between the sun and the moon, but I just killed that moment. In fact, yeah. she closed the book and walked and left, right? <laughs> so it was over. Um, and I think that's a good reminder to us is, you know, can we just spend time exploring and just being present? Yeah. And that's really, that I would say is the most important thing to know that somebody's there. You have somebody who's, who's going to support you and it's going to be okay to make mistakes and we're going to encourage them to take these kinds of beautiful risks yeah. where they can share out their ideas and actually make the world a better place, really yeah. kind of realize their potential. So yeah, I'll, um, I'll give I you a call. Them. I'll give you a yeah. call again when they're um, like <laughs> 16. I'm sure that's a whole different set of <laughs> yeah. questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, again, I will probably ask, be asking, I'm open to any advice myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you talk a little, and there's honestly around there's so much we could talk about with your work and um, I, I'm conscious of, of your time and the time seems to have flown today. So maybe at some point we could uh, do a round two and, and unpack some of your work because there's, there's so much, so many questions that I want to ask you. Um, uh, but would you mind just talking a little bit about the difference between a, Sorry, uh, uh, defining what a beautiful risk is and also why yeah. beautiful risks are so important. And in addition, what are some of the beautiful risks that you have taken? Yeah, so I think, you know, what I mean by a beautiful risk is whenever you do something new, right? Again, so this uncertainty is always present in this is you don't know how it's going to turn out. So a risk is really has two components. There's potential hazards and potential benefits, yeah. any risk. And so I think part of kind of understanding when, when you're going to try to do something new or different, you know, a bad risk would be when you perceive the potential hazards outweighing the potential yeah. benefits and a good risk is the inverse of that. Yeah. But that's usually for the self, right? That we're usually, when we're talking about that, we're usually talking about the self or when we're teaching young people about that, we're usually talking about, 
themselves. A beautiful risk is when you try to do something new and different that has the potential to make a contribution to the learning and lives of others. Mm -hmm. And the hazard is it may not work out, right? So I would say we, we tend to do this. Um, I think educators can do this and do do this whenever they're trying something new, when they're looking at a lesson and they're realizing like this really wasn't working and I wanna give my students more opportunity to be you know, the agents of their own learning and of their own world and to work together and, and to work through this. And so I think a beautiful risk is when you do unstructure some of these overstructured lessons and um, invite your students to try to do, meet a goal or criteria in their own way um, and it may not work out, right? So anytime we're doing these kind of experimental things, that's kind of a beautiful risk because the benefit of doing so not only benefits their learning, but it can benefit the learning of other students in the room and it can also benefit your learning as an educator. So I would say those are the beautiful risks that I'm really trying to take in my own work is realizing where am I um, spending too much time predetermining what should happen in the space and, and instead stepping back yeah. and trying to provide enough of a structured and supportive framework where students can be invited to take those risks, encouraged to take those risks um, with each other yeah. and, and push that learning out into the world. Yeah. What, um, it would be a miss of me uh, not to ask you what you think the current COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm aware that it's ongoing, um, is uh, what, what is that sort of teaching us about the role of schools um, and also the role of educators? And what lessons can we learn from this really, really, really challenging time? Yeah, I mean, I think, for many folks, because the transition um, to something completely different was so rapid and pressing that a lot of folks didn't really have time to sit and think like, how could we do this? How should we do this? It was just like, how, how do we just keep school going, right? Yeah. So there was like a lot of the Zoom kind of thing, which, you know, allowed for things to kind of, in some ways, you know, try to, they, I think the idea was, let's just keep school going. But the problem is, we're in a completely different venue and it is this moment of it's such profound uncertainty it's a moment to actually pause and think differently and i think the moment is still with us and will continue to be with us as we now reflect on okay how well did it work to teach online there might have been some things that happened but i think in many cases it just become became a less effective way of of still pretty i think prototypical teaching um, under this kind of pedagogy of sameness, but it was really difficult because now students are scattered all over and some don't have access to the internet and so on. So I think it was just, I think some folks are realizing that what this pandemic revealed is A, that teachers do a lot of hard work. It's hard for families to try to, to do that work um, and, and to realize, but also to realize that maybe there's too, again, there's too much being done as far as, um, you know, just trying to cover content as much as possible and, and just kind of everyone doing the same thing in the same way at the same time. And there are these missed opportunities. I think there are were a lot of missed opportunities. So I'm not being critical of teachers because I realized this was like a survival moment, some, in some ways, literally a survival moment. But I think now in, in retrospect, in hindsight, can we think about what did this moment teach us? So I would invite people to, to think themselves about that. And can we do more with the time we have now? Because I think what education has become, and I think what the pandemic re revealed is, it's almost like this promissory note. 
like if we do all this stuff right now, then someday it's going to pay out in you getting to the next level or you getting to university or you getting a good job or having a good life. But no one's experiencing um, the potential right now. It's always pushed off into the future. Some, and that happens in primary, secondary, um, university and beyond, and even the world of work. And so what I would ask us all, including myself, to think about is, can we, what can we be doing differently now? What if we use time right now to do something meaningful? Can we take, can we restructure some of our time, even five minutes a day? Could we, I think what we realized is in some cases, a lot of stuff that was happening in the school day, all this work could be, can be compressed. And there's, there's a lot of time to do something else, do something different. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, can we get, even if kids are, you know, at home, can they at least go out in the yard or something or the, you know, not necessarily the street, but get so, you know, can, is there different things you can do in front of a screen even? Yeah. Right. I yeah. think there were some teachers that were kind of experimenting with that, but I think there's, there's so much lost potential in school. Yeah. That, it, and that promissory note kind of turns out to be bankrupt for many students, even students that are successful, they don't necessarily realize that they did something they're really proud of. Like, they, do they build a rooftop garden and feed families that don't have access to fresh produce? I mean, any grade level could do that. Yeah. What, mm -hmm. if, what if you spent five minutes a day doing something like that, mm -hmm. really making, taking a beautiful risk and making the world a better place? Yeah. Kids are capable of doing that. And I think they certainly will rise to that challenge. Yeah. But I think we need to be, as educators, we need to think about, can we use this time differently? Yeah. You know, now that we've kind of been in this, we've kind of had this stopgap of using Zoom or whatever. But now if we think about it, is there, do we see possibilities of, can we do this, not just this typical schooling better or more efficiently, can we do it differently? Yeah. And what would that look like? And why would we do that? And what possibilities might that lead to? Yeah. And how can we really create experiences that not only, you know, help kids learn the content, but actually help kids learn that they are agents in this world that can make the world a better place, right? And that difference matters, that they can work with different perspectives and those different perspectives actually generate creative opportunities. And then they can do something in their communities, their neighborhoods, their schools that they can point to and say, I made that. Yeah. I made that when I was in grade three and yeah. now I'm in grade eight or whatever. Yeah. And they're proud of it, right? I mean, we all, some of us have those experiences, right? And so why can't school be like that? Why can't it be both and? Yeah. Right. Why is it this either or like you either you do this now or you're not going to be successful? Why can't we just do something meaningful now and learn, you know, things that people think are important, that our societies and communities think are important. But yeah. I think that kind of work is so much more profoundly meaningful to people. And it does help people not lose that playful, curious, creative sense of oneself if you're actually doing things and, and making things, and it's not about gradations of performance or any of that, you can just bring that to the administration. You could bring it to parents and say, look what the kids did, right? Yeah. They made the world a better place in the, it could be in a small way in this school. They made the world a better place for this other kid in their class yeah. for this reason, yeah. or for this, this, um, these groups of folks in our community they made a contribution to these elderly folks or whatever the case may be. And then think about it in kind of this lasting way. So I think that's the key part of a beautiful risk to make a contribution to the learning lives of others that kind of lives on. 
Yeah. That's, that's the thing. So if you do create this little rooftop garden and you are in grade three, who's going to take it over when you go to grade four? Are you going to keep working on it or should we bring in some grade two kids, right? Yeah. Can we make these things be generative and ongoing? Can we partner with organizations in our community that are going to help? Can we get a, get some gardeners in? If you know, maybe you have an uncle who's a gardener or an aunt who's a plumber that can help with irrigation. Who knows, right? And we can really do something and we can realize that all people have the potential to contribute. Yeah. I think that, that can be, I think there are people realizing that when we had to kind of step away and go to, through technology that just wasn't satisfying. It just, it just, there, it, there was something missing and it, we shouldn't think we need to desperately get back to what we were doing. I think we need to desperately get back to something different, yeah. something more human and more creative. This is like, this is what it revealed for me is everything that, that, um, that a lot of the things that were being taught and learned, a machine could do both of those things. And for many kids, that's what they were doing. They were just using machines to provide, you know, they were, had access to they're online, they'll just look it up on Google, even though the school's like, don't look it up on Google or whatever, right? So I think what it revealed is this is really almost, we're doing machine type teaching and learning and not really human type teaching yeah. and learning. That's really yeah. making the world a better place. Now, right now. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, thank you so much, Ron, for sharing that. Your uh, passion and enthusiasm is better than uh, any source of caffeine that I currently need uh, because it's so early in the morning. Uh, but um, Ron, I, I just want to be respectful of your time and I'm of course, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that you would take the time to chat with me. It's a, it's a, it's a real pleasure and I can't wait to discover um, more about your work. Um, but just uh, in the final few questions, um, I just wanted to ask what um, advice uh, would you give to people that are considering becoming teachers and also what advice would you give to teachers um, who are just about to, uh, today in Australia, just about to embrace their classroom again and speak with their students? What, uh, what advice would you like to, to give them? Yeah, I would say, you know, just to recognize and trust yourself and your students to really do important work, that yeah. you can do it. No matter where you are, what stage of your career, no matter what kind of prior learning experience you had, um, I think we need to, to really think in the realm of possibilities and move from kind of this pedagogy of sameness to a pedagogy of the possible. Yeah. And to really do work that's memorable and meaningful to your students and to yourself. I mean, and, and allow yourself, to, if you play guitar, for example, bring that into the classroom, but not just to you know, show off that you don't play guitar, <laughs> but allow and allow your students to do the same. But think yeah. about that beyond that, not just for that, for expression, but to think about now, how can we use some of these things we're all interested in um, to try to do something that's gonna matter to other people yeah. in our local environment or beyond, Absolutely. right? And so I, I would say uh, my advice would be for people entering the profession, encourage and take beautiful risks. It would be for people that have been in the profession forever, encourage and take beautiful risks. And I would say, in addition to that, how can we expect young people to take risks if we're not willing to do so ourselves? Yeah. So we have to kind of lead the way. Yeah. But I think it's it's certainly possible and I think certainly rewarding when we do that. Amazing, what a wonderful uh, high point to uh, to start to wrap things up. Um, Ron, I just wondered, uh, where can people find out more about your um, incredible work? And is there anything that you're currently working on that you'd like people to check out? 
Sure. So um, you can go to my website, which is just ronaldbegetto.com, just my name. No, there's nothing in between my name and just .com. And I have um, one of my recent books called Beautiful Risk that talks about this in the context of teaching and learning. Um, that's available now. I'm working on a project called Uncertainty by Design, which is going to really kind of elaborate on these ideas. How can we design with uncertainty in a way to kind of leverage you know, this kind of learning and creative expression in and beyond the classroom and to really make contributions to others. I have another project um, with my colleague Vlad Glavenu that we're working on called Pedagogies of the Possible, where we're really trying to showcase what could these different pedagogies look like? How can we move? How can we make this shift um, away from pedagogies of sameness to pedagogies of the possible? But again, um, you know, I, if people want to read those things, I think that's wonderful and I hope they're inspired by them and find some ideas, but I would also encourage more than anything, if you're going to take time, take time with your students and in the workshop of your own minds and imagine what's possible in your own context, right? I think sometimes reading other things can be inspiring, but they can also be stifling. Like, oh, I don't know if I could do that in my context. So I encourage people just to just start with where you are and, and try to become inspired why did you get into this profession? What is possible in this context? Invite your students just to have that conversation. You know, what's something that's happening in the school or neighborhood or community that, that's bothering you that you wanna do something about? Mm -hmm. And I, that will be inspiring to see yeah. those kids rise to that challenge and really um, do something and make a difference. And I think, and then you can write your own books about that. I think it's important to share those stories, right? Honestly, yeah. so that's not just a glib thing to say. I'm saying when you do that kind of work, share it out, share it out with the school board, the administration, share it out with families, the community, have showcases, maybe do put it in a little book, self-publish something, share it out. I mean, what a beautiful thing you could share each year. Here's what this class did. It could be a little poster, it could be a little movie, who knows, but have some sort of artifact that you, know, you can carry forward and you can inspire the nice. next generation. So all those things I would encourage folks to do. Um, but yeah, stay in touch and let me know. I'm always curious to hear what, what people are doing and, and learning from the work of other educators and students. Yeah. So thank, thank you, you, Matthew. I appreciate all the work you're doing as an educator. So, I always um, applaud and I'm humbled um, by folks that are in the field of education. It's, it's certainly a rewarding and humbling <laughs> profession. There's no doubt about it. Amazing. Well, like I said, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's such it's been such a, a pleasure and a privilege to discover and and, and to um, embrace some of your amazing work. And so uh, thank you. And please, please keep up the good work. And I can't wait to do a round two at some point. Likewise. All right. Thank you, thank you. Matthew. Get some rest or I guess keep going throughout the day. Thanks a lot. Bye, Ron. All right. Take good care. Bye bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.